Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he, stand, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and order Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews had, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and, be, and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar tribunal. Here I ought to be tried to the Jews. I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if, there's it, but, but if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. This is the word of God. So if you guys have need of a Bible, uh, pastors are going to be pass, passing them out. Please just raise your hand. And in case you don't have a Bible for yourself, if you'd like one, we'd be happy to supply you with one. We want to make sure you have opportunity to read the Word of God on your own. So good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. Praise the Lord. So as Pastor said, um, my name is Matthew Rojek, and along with my wife, Betty, my great wife who t- taught me how to shift about 33 years ago, and you can ask her that story. But uh, we've been down here almost four years. It really is our pleasure to serve uh, under great leadership. You guys, I hope you realize what great leadership you have in Pastor Eric, Pastor Leon. These are great men of God, and it's just really a pleasure to be part of their lives uh, serving as an elder. So if you guys are new, one thing that's important to us at MacAv is that we recognize that knowledge just puffs up but it's important that there be application in our lives, that there be change in our lives, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So therefore, this is just not about me giving you guys some pieces to a puzzle or something that you can stick in your back pocket. It really is about you guys figuring out what's the application. What is God's word saying to me today? And how can I use that so that I can grow and become more like Christ? So I say that to say if you have questions please raise your hand and be happy to talk about them. I just ask that they be applicable to the scriptures that we're talking today in point of relevance. So let's uh, close your eyes if you will. We're going to pray and ask the Lord to come. 
Oh, great and gracious Heavenly Father. Lord, as we sang, you've been so good to us. We've got love, joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I believe Paul sang that same song while he was in jail. Lord, come now. Fill our hearts and our minds with understanding. You say in your word, you give sight to the blind and ears to the deaf. You take out us a stony heart and you put in a new soft heart of flesh that we might serve you. Lord, may that be the case today. Drop the scales from our eyes. Unplug our ears that not only would we hear, but we would be obedient to you, Jesus. Lord, we lay prostate before you as we know you are king, worthy of all, including suffering. Lord, guide my speech that it may be pleasing to you. And regardless of whether I'm eloquent or not, Lord, we know your word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even our wicked hearts, Lord God, to bring your light. Speak clearly. Lord, may we just enjoy you in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So a month and a half ago, I get an email that says, hey, when, when do you think you guys want to preach? There's a list out there of potential dates and scriptures. So I look through, and there's about one that will work my schedule. So I send back an email to everybody. Hey, here's the, here's the day that would be good for me. I should have read the scripture first. Because afterwards, I said, are you kidding? Did you guys see that scripture? There's nothing there. There's no meat. There's no principle. There's no command. There's just a narrative. And my normal nature would be, man, I would start freaking out, thinking, okay, Lord, what, you know, what can I do? What kind of twist? You know, I want the people of God to be able to hear something cool. You know, I want them to give me a high five at the end of the sermon. And you guys all know that that's foolishness. And what I started to think about is God's care for his sheep is omnipotent. He doesn't need me up here. He can use a story like that to break your heart and cause you repentance. And then the other thing I thought about was 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says, most scripture is inspired by God. Yeah, okay. You guys ought to be throwing tomatoes by now. All scripture is inspired by God and is fit for teaching and for training in righteousness. Man, when I was a really young believer, I mean, I think I was six months old in the Lord. I'm reading through the book of Romans. I'm in Romans 2. And they keep talking back and forth that they knew God, but they did not retain God in their knowledge. Or they knew God, but they were still living in darkness. And that's the first time I'd ever heard of this thing called Vine's Expository Dictionary. So I look up this word new because it looked like it was being misused and I didn't understand And there was a slew of words, but one that I focused on that was, man, just a beautiful thing. I mean, I remember to this day, I I don't know if it's, I think it's pronounced epignosis. And I look it up, and the definition of epignosis, when it was used referring to the righteous believers in the book of Romans, epignosis is a greater participation by the knower in the object known, thus more powerfully influencing them a greater participation by the knower in the object known thus more powerfully influencing him 
You guys remember, I think, a week or two ago, Pastor Eric's talking, and he was talking about, you know, if we get up in the morning, we spend an hour, hour and a half in the Word, then we got, what, 13 or 14 more hours of bombardment from radio or TV or unbelievers or work environment. And he was saying, like, how big is our percentage of of intake that we're receiving from the Word of God or from believers in fellowship. Again, a greater participation by the knower in the object known. What Eric was saying is we need to continue to participate. We need to continue to let the Word of God bombard our mind and friends and family and relationships so that that percentage continues to grow so that we're not like them who they knew God but they didn't retain them in their knowledge. It didn't profit them whatsoever. They continued to walk in darkness. So we're going to have a little commercial break. When Spear heard Won't Grow's talk, he changed his mind, joined all the others. Shoefoot was now completely alone. Short man stepped up. Shoefoot, we love you, and we have always respected you and followed you. But this is one time that all of us disagree with you. We all know we have to go out there and knock some heads. If we do that and give Yoshimakali a chance to come back to the village, then other people will finally leave us alone. Kilawa and his brother Mikui refused to take sides. Later, we learned that they didn't know which side to take. The sun burned harder. How many of you guys could write a book report on what I just said on this book? Could any of you? Why not? It's an incomplete thought. You don't know the full narrative. You know, your report would say, yeah, it sounded like some guys were fighting and they took sides. But is that the full narrative? Of course it's not. Again, why do you think that Pastor Eric and Pastor Leon continue to exhort us that we're going verse by verse in order Verse by verse, we're not jumping around, plucking stuff out, taking it out of context, not fully grasping the full narrative. Again, for me to ask you guys to do that with that little passage I gave you is foolishness. My point is that we dig, that as we dig and know the whole scope of the gospel narrative, the word brings holistic change in our lives and not isolated, out-of-context thinking. The participation that we use is not only the brief encounter of isolated principles, as in the book that I just read, but it's a day-by-day, verse-by-verse understanding of the narrative, not only from Genesis to Revelations, but from Acts 1 through Acts 25. So there's like little tiny narratives, but those little tiny narratives are under the greater participation of the, the larger narrative. So again, I look at this scripture after I hit send, Man, I'm thinking, man, this is boring. But a couple of points. There is always relevance to each audience, both to the Jew who's looking at that back then as well as for the New Testament believer to develop and to give us understanding. Romans says that Scripture is powerful and that it's capable to transform our mind, our mindset, bringing what? Change and obedience. Uh, as, as previously mentioned, there's no specific charges 
or commands or principles directed towards the reader. There's not this, hey, Jesus was the captain of our salvation was made perfect through suffering so that you and I can ponder that and say, well, man, if the captain was made perfect through suffering, I, I guess that there can be benefit in it for me. There's not a command about transform your mind by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable perfect will of God. There's not principles or commands that you and I can stand on and launch off as a home base, but it's a small part of the narrative. So if there was going to be a, um, a name for today's sermon, I, I think we'd call it perspective. I'm going to tell you a story. I have a, a business, and I started about 25 years ago, and I don't know if you guys know what pinstriping on cars is, but that's what I did. I put little stripes on cars, followed the body lines, went dealership to dealership with a vehicle full of little rolls of tape and going to introduce myself and pinstriping cars. So a buddy of mine, Keith Loris, asked me, he says, hey, you want to go to the Autorama? He says, I got tickets. Now, Keith was a vendor to the Autorama. He was a supplier, so we got to go a couple of days before the whole thing opened up. And he said, hey, we're going to bring another guy, Ron. Ron's an architect. So Keith, Ron, and myself, we walk into the autoram and we're walking around. And man, I tell you what, the coolest thing happened. I'm watching these guys, and Keith has a plywood company. He sells plywood for the guys to make the displays, for them to box things up in crates to ship there, all the electronic equipment. And Keith's walking around, and he's like, man, I could sell him plywood for this. And, and his perspective is where can he sell more plywood? Now, Ron is an architect. And Ron designs um, the Autorama booths, the big displays. So he's looking at all these displays. Man, I love how the guy, well, that doesn't work. Man, I wonder how they built this because this arch is hanging over. I'm looking at cars saying, that's a new body style. Am I going to wrap my pinstriper on the trunk? There's mirrors there. I'm going to have to stop it. What happens? Our perspective drove our pattern of observation. Our perspective drove our pattern of observation. If you read the gospel objectively, you're going to find that in some places, Jesus is just plain out harsh. He calls people brood of vipers, tells us we got to hate our mother, says that I'm going to bring mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, tells us to cut our arm off, pluck our eye out. If sin continues to direct us in that, Why? Why did he do that? Oh, lastly, he tells some gal, he says, I'm not going to give, you're a dog. I'm not going to give the meat of Israel to you. The woman didn't take offense, did she? Now, why does Jesus do that? He does it because he would have what I would call a perfect, eternal perspective. Perspective. He understands fully the consequences of hell And he understood fully the consequences of being in right relationship with God. One was obviously absolutely tragic, and the other one was joy unspeakable. And Jesus, being God, had a full grasp of the potency of both of those things. So he could be harsh where he needed to be. And I contend to you that Paul had a similar aspect of an eternal perspective. And I think we can see this in his dogged determination to trust God even after an additional two years in prison. Not to mention all the other horrific acts that happened to him that he previously suffered. And his adherence to go to Rome, which most likely was what? Sentence of death. I mean, basically no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So let's turn to the scriptures. 
We're going to make some observations as I go through the scriptures. And one thing I, I wanted to be careful to say is, again, because this is part of a narrative, I'm going to make some observations. They're not calculated facts that I'm p- passing on to you guys. You know, when we were praying earlier, Jonathan was talking and praying about the Bereans. Bereans said, you know what, bud, I'm, I'm going to hold you to your word. I'm going to go back and look to make sure what you said is right on. You guys need to do that same thing for me, okay? These are my observations. To me, verse 2 illustrates a couple of things. It illustrates not only man's wicked heart, but his choice to continue to embrace wickedness. In the book of Proverbs, it says, quit adding logs to the fire, and it's going to go out. What in the world could have kept the Sanhedrin going in their anger that after two years of Paul being in jail, man, they're, they're right back at it. They want to see this guy wailed on. And I would say one thing, and that thing is that Christianity flourished. In Acts 5, uh, Gamaliel addressed the Sanhedrin, and he basically says, Hey, guys, this is when they were getting ready to um, persecute some of the apostles. And he comes up and he goes to the Sanhedrin and he says, Hey, guys, guess what? A number of years back, there was this guy, and... uh, you know, he, he was speaking what, what he was saying was truth. And all of a sudden, he had 400 followers. But you know what happened to him? He got killed. 400 followers disbanded. And he goes on and he gives another um, example. And he says, therefore, in the present case, I advise you guys, leave these guys alone. Because one of two things is going to happen. Either because Jesus is dead... All these guys are going to scatter and they're going to go on their merry way because there's no longer any substance to hold this following together because the following was was based on just this one guy. As soon as he died, it was gone. He was making a parallel to Jesus. Now that Jesus is dead, man, he's gone. He said, but if not, if this thing is of God, he said, you're going to find yourself fighting against God. Now I'm taking a little bit of a leap here, but my guess is... These guys were going before Festus. They knew about this. They had to know about this. What continued to drive them in their anger against Paul? It's because Christianity was flourishing. It was because some of Paul's missionary journeys, all those little seedlings, man, they're sprouting and they're taking root. Verse 3, question for you guys. Do you guys think these ambush guys made the same vow that the guys back in 23 did? Yeah, no food or water till we kill Paul. What do you think happened to those guys? Do you think they said, oops, I guess we made a mistake and, and squelched their vow? Or do you think they're dead? These guys chose not to make that same mistake. <laughs> Verse 5, Festus says if, and in my mind what Festus is saying is, you know what, bud, you're innocent until proven guilty. Josephus has a comment and says basically that Festus was better than Felix. Verse 7, there were many and serious charges that they could not prove. And, you know, even Paul saying to Festus, you know, uh, Paul is arguing his case, and he says, man, Festus, in verse 11, he says, even as yourself, you know this. And when we look at First, or first Peter 2.12, it's talking about living such a good life before pagans that even when they have something to say against you, basically their mouth's going to be shut, or if their mouth's open, they're going to say, Man, those dudes live according to what they say. And look at, look, at, look, at, look at Paul's life. Paul lived a pretty impeccable life. And then, what, a week or two ago we see where he spoke up against the high priest, gets slapped across the face. What does he do? He doesn't, you know, push his shoulders back in arrogance. He says, man, sorry, guys. Good repenter. 
quickly repenting. He didn't give those guys any more fuel. He lived his life before pagans, before the Jews, as a righteous man of God. So even when they were going to say, you smoke against the high priest. Yeah, but man, I repented. You know, Dr. Luke. My guess is that he was a very intellectual man, a critical thinker, and apparently observed the trial firsthand. Luke didn't see that they were, he could be persuaded by the charges, and it doesn't look like Festus was either. And then in verse 8 where Paul talks about uh, what he didn't violate, and I find this pretty interesting. Jews, temple, Caesar. Okay, Jews, and he doesn't link the Jews and the temple together. And I'd be willing to bet you this was a little bit of jab at the Jews. He separates those things. He was saying, man, these Jews, you know, they might go to the temple, but they don't know the temple. They don't know the Yahweh that's in that temple because Paul was preaching the conclusion of what the Jews were searching for. And then lastly, I mean, I think he appeals to uh, Festus by saying, hey, man, I'm good with Caesar. I didn't violate anything like that. I'm just thinking, did Paul leave that in Festus's mind as a last thought that, hey, I don't have to worry about this guy. He might have a gripe with the Jews, but, but not with Caesar, and I'm okay with that. Verse 9. Um, so, okay, we're, this is going to be a little bit of a crux. We're going to refer back to it later, but I want you guys to pay attention to this. Why would Festus ask Paul if he wanted to go to Jerusalem? Why on earth would Paul want to go back to Jerusalem? Every time he goes there, he gets beat up. I mean, like, did you really? Oh, yeah, yeah, send me back. Can I, can I go with these guys? They'll, they'll protect me. So did he do that? But it looks like he was appealing to the Jews and saying, hey, you know what, I, I at least tried to get him to go back, and he was appealing to the Jews that were there. Or was he calling Paul's bluff? Oh, you think you're innocent? Then go stand before these guys. But I contend to you that was something entirely different. And we'll get to that in a minute. Verse 11, um, this just shows me again Paul's continual confidence towards God, God's call to Rome. And then he says something, he says, he says the Festus, he says, no man can give me up to them. And if you look back at John 19, 11, uh, I believe Jesus said about the same thing to Pilate. Pilate's saying, hey man, I got the power in my hand to do with you whatever I want. And Jesus says, yeah, you really don't. The only power that you have is the power that my Father has given you. I mean, can you imagine the utter confidence and the utter peace that Paul had as Jesus did? You know, it's not like, man, you know, the Lord turned his back and fell asleep on this one. He didn't see this thing coming. He's omnipotent. He knows everything. We can rest assured that the Father knows the next minute, the next hour. He knows exactly what's going on, and we can rest in that. Why didn't Paul appeal to Rome previously? I would contend he had two, two years to preach to Felix, and he was hoping that Felix would come to repentance. Paul's perseverance under pressure and persecution. As we mentioned earlier, Paul had the eternal uh, perspective we previously discussed that allowed him to not be dissuaded by beatings, prison, more beatings, more prison. And if you guys didn't hear Eric's sermon a couple of weeks back where Paul was in Jerusalem and all those guys were beating on him and Eric brought up the analogy of when he was a kid and he got sucker punched by a 14-year-old, you know, what was happening to Paul there? I mean, they didn't have a water balloon fight. You know, they, they weren't calling him names. 
they were pounding him, probably bricks in their hands or rocks, cowards from the side kicking him in the ribs. And, 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 and man, I'd almost ask you guys to close your eyes, but think about this. Paul is beat down. The Romans come in to get him out of there, and they're dragging him up the stairs, and Paul's going, wait, 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 I, I want one more chance to preach to these guys. Man, he's gotten beat down, and they're going to continue to beat him if the Romans hadn't rescued him. And yet, Paul's eternal perspective was, they're not my enemies. They're my kin. They're my blood relatives. I don't want to see them perish. You know, the eternal perspective is an exceptionally powerful thing. Paul had it. Is God still sovereign when troubles and sorrows prevail? Of course he is. When, when evil appears to win, what is our response to be? It's to be a, a, a balance between grace and truth. We're to work as hard as we can in this life, sacrificing, sweating, getting dirty, building our muscles. But there's the balance of that, which is to rest and rely on God's sovereignty. I just think that there's a dynamic tension there that really would bode us well if we paid attention to it. Think about this. You guys have heard the um, sayings, look before you leap, and he who hesitates is lost. Those are completely contradictory. Now, I keep going back to this narrative thing. They sound contradictory when they're next to each other, but if you put them in an overall narrative, there are times in my business life that I've had to look before I, or I had to leap before I looked. It was like, hey, babes, we got an opportunity here. I'm jumping. When I jumped out of the airplane, man, I couldn't look down. I just jumped. But there's other times where my conservative nature said, you know what, I need to think about a little bit about this. So my question to you is, what drives our answer of grace or truth? And I would say it's not a what. It's a... Paul was knocked off his horse, had his jail cell rattled off the hinges, and a jailer and an entire family came to Christ. Is your life or my life any different than Paul's? I contend it really, really is not. God desires to show himself strong and able to direct our paths, especially in the midst of trials and sorrow. Ken Morgan and I have a great friendship because we battled through rough spots. If we wouldn't have had that, I wouldn't have learned loyalty from Ken. And you guys have heard this probably a bunch of times, but my wife and I have been married 34 years. We have had knockdown dragouts, but because we've persevered through those things, we have got a great relationship, and loyalty has been developed in that. If all we did was have happy times with Jesus, sorry, I just don't think that would cut it. It's in the sorrowful times when we're freaked out that we get on our knees and we say, Lord, what are you doing? That God comes down and he quiets our soul and he speaks to us, my peace I give unto you. 
Do you listen and yearn to hear God? Do you spend quiet times? Just you and the Lord. Do you seek him with your whole heart? Because First Chronicles promises that if you do, you will find him. So my observation is that early on in Acts, we've witnessed exceptionally vivid pictures of the Holy Spirit's move, moving. Peter's boldness, Jesus' resurrection. Peter saying, you know what? Silver and gold I don't have. Rise in the name of Jesus and walk. Entire households coming to faith. Now what do we see? This portion of scripture that those guys gave me doesn't even mention God, Christ, salvation, the kingdom of God. Nothing but a narrative. But in the whole of this narrative we call the Bible, there is life and there's eternal life. So my observation is, is the Holy Spirit working in the plain and mundane routine of our daily lives? Of course he is. He drives circumstances. He orders common but divine appointments. A kind word, an act of service to your neighbor. Or I guess I'd ask you, or does he only work in the visually spectacular fireworks of the first chapters of Acts? Is the question, okay, here you guys, please, man, if you hear one thing today, is the question asked by Festus of Paul, do you want to go to Jerusalem? Is that any less miraculous because he's giving Paul the choice? Is it any less miraculous that he, Festus would ask Paul that than shadows falling on people and them getting healed? I contend no. That was God driving that aspect. Do we ask Jesus for a sign or do we see them all around us? Can you get that next scripture, Jonathan? Do we ask Jesus for a sign or do we see him all around us? Look at Mac development. You've got to be kidding me. Over 600 grand raised. Think about Mac legal. A page that someone doesn't know that's available that they fill out and they sign their name because they don't have an understanding of a lawyer. I'm sorry. To me, that's a miracle. You just, just granted somebody something because you understand how the law works. What do you think is going to happen 10 or 15 years from now for these kids that are going through Max Sports, Ethan? They're going to say, man, I had a great coach. Ken Morgan drove me. Drill Sergeant Jason Faraday wouldn't let me rest. He pushed and pushed and pushed and developed in these children, man, fortitude, perseverance, doing things with all your heart. Regardless of whether your teammates do them or not. Part of being a team. Not just being an individual. You don't think that's not going to transpose into their lives in high school and college? What about Mac Litt, Marilyn? You don't think these kids are going to be in college? And say, someone took the time to teach me how to read. Taught me my phonics. Gave me homework. Followed up on my homework. Make sure I did it. 
Those are miracles. Those are just flat out miracles. So Friday night, we got our first prayer time across the street from the Mac building. Put out this big prayer banner. Alvin and I, Elijah, Anna, sitting there, we're talking to people, coming back and forth. Halfway through the night, Alvin and I are talking to this guy and this other older guy. Well, sorry, guy my age, older guy. (laughs) Comes walking down the street. Elijah and Anna are talking to him. And uh, I'm hanging with Alvin, and Alvin's wrestling with this dude. <laughs> so I, I go over, and I start talking with this guy. And uh, so I ask Elijah, I said, you know, introduce me. And the guy's name's Eddie. Eddie just gets through telling Elijah, man, I never come this way. I, I always go down to Gothi. So I said, well, brother, what's your needs? So we, we're sharing the gospel with him. We're talking to him about Jesus. Have you ever heard the gospel? You know what the gospel is. And we're, we're sharing everything. And Elijah says, brother Eddie um, is, is asking us to pray for him for housing. So I say, well, where do you live now? This is uh, Gautier and Townsend. Well, no way. I said, I know somebody lives right on the corner. And Eddie says to me, oh, you mean the twins? You guys know Carolyn Davis lives on that corner, and she has a twin. So Eddie, who never walks down Mac Ave, hears the gospel and finds he knows somebody who goes to our church. Come on. I am really grateful, and I hope you guys are paying attention, when Eric, when we're doing these prayer cards and somebody gets a job or... You know, their their brother comes back or something like that, that you and I chalk up to coincidence when Eric says, Come on, we gotta praise the Lord. We gotta shout it out. That's a good word for us to remember. So two points to ponder. The Holy Spirit's the Holy Spirit and God's works are always miraculous. Now, they might not be miraculous. By theological definition, and I hope you guys grasp the point that I'm trying to make here, but they're miraculous nonetheless. And two, that they will not always be spectacular to our carnal senses, but can and should be acknowledged as his as we train our spiritual discerners to be paying attention. Does that make sense to you guys? Did I, I mean, I want to make sure that that point is clear. Our carnal senses might not, oh, that was just coincidence or... Well, I mean, the dude was just walking down Mac Ave. Come on, how, he, he could have known that, Carolyn. No, no, that was divine. So maybe three points for application. One, I exhort you not to think in terms of coincidence, chance, or luck, but remind yourself of God's mundane providence in all people and circumstances. This is a big one. Don't wait to be led by the Spirit in order to live for God. You need to be exercising faith and obedience now. Whether or not you've heard this special calling from God, which I believe in, and I've participated in that, but there are some things that are very clear in Scripture that are just commands of God. We don't need to wait to be led to do those. Those are commands. They're not questions. If you're praying for something, you want to hear God's voice, Ashley's trying to figure out, hey, am I going to hang in Rio? 
That's a different scenario. She's going because she wants to be a missionary. But she's also praying for discernment. And there's that balance that I was talking about earlier, about grace and truth. Man, there's times to work hard. She had to work hard to pay for the ticket to get there. But now she's going to rest and rely, okay, God, I'm listening. I'm listening. Make sure you're discerning which aspect you're supposed to be running towards. And lastly, rhetorical question that I'd like to ask you guys to think about. How can you train yourself to recognize that God is at work in the routine of daily life? So when Sandra is sitting in a city board meeting and they're talking about writing a grant or Ted's making maps and for the 40th time he's got to make a correction or Caitlin's cutting somebody's hair or, and man, I, I hope you gals hear me, Sarah Russ, wherever you're at, Sarah Bowman, Rebecca, you gals who stay home, and even those gals who don't stay home, but let me go with this. For the thousandth diaper that you've changed, or the twelfth time in a minute that you've answered the question, why? You know, when Betty and I first got married, I'm a numbers guy, and like we'd been married a year, and I'm all, hey, Betts, do you realize like, if we get married 40 years, that's three meals a day times 365 times. But he says, man, don't do that. You're making me tired already. <laughs> but really, I want to go back to that. Man, if you're staying home, or if you're a guy and you're staying home, and you're doing monotonous, mundane, routine things that you say to yourself, man, like, where is the Lord in this? Am I honoring him, or am I wasting my time raising my children to honor God. God is in the mundane things. He's in the routine things. Praise the Lord for fireworks in the book of Acts. Hallelujah. Bring them on. I'm ready for that. But you and I both know that that's usually not where we live. We're living in Detroit and we're walking down Mac Avenue and we see sorrows abounding. And we shared with this Eddie dude. I mean, praise the Lord. So have you guys ever heard of a guy named Brother Lawrence? Raise your hand if you have. Anybody? Cool. Okay, a couple of you guys. In the 1600s, there was a guy, his name was Herman. I don't know where he got Brother Lawrence. He ended up going to a monastery in Paris, and he was a lay brother because he was uneducated. He couldn't even be a real monk. He's a lay brother. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to read straight from this. 1600s. He was assigned to a monastery kitchen where amidst the tedious chores of cooking and cleaning at the constant bidding of his superiors, he developed his rule of spirituality and work. In his maxims, basically his diary, Lawrence writes, men invent means and methods of coming at God's love. They learn rules and set up devices to remind them of that love, and it all seems like a world of trouble to bring oneself into the consciousness of God's presence. Yet, it might be so simple as, is it not quicker and easier just to do our common business wholly for the love of him? Nor is it needful that we should have great things to do, diapers. We can do little things for God. I take the cake that is frying in the pan 
I, sorry, I turn the cake that is frying in the pan for the love of him. And if there's nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself in worship before him who has given me grace to work. Afterwards, I rise happier than a king. It is enough for me to but pick up a straw from the ground for the love of God. And then he says, I begin to live as if there was no one save God and me in the world. The time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great of tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. So he's equating coming before communion as flipping a turnover in the oven. So I would exhort you guys, in the balance of the narrative of the book of Acts, we see the miraculous, and now we see scripture where God's not even mentioned, and and Paul's fighting. He's fighting to go to Rome. He's got the eternal perspective that drives him to Rome. I exhort you, brothers and sisters, pay attention because God is working all around us. And in the land of the billboards, great America, where everything is above and beyond and exploding and tries to grab our attention, I don't believe that that's where the Lord is. He's walking right up and down Mac Ave. He's in your houses when you're washing the toilet. He's in your house when you're instructing your children or when you're holding them because they got runny noses. And he's in the midst of you when you're in sorrows. You are not alone. Paul got another two years. He made the most of that time because he saw the God in the midst of it. And he trusted in God's sovereignty. You can't do anything to me. You can only do that which the Father has allowed you to. So, we're going to have a time of tithe and offering and a time of communion.